This is Hacker Public Radio, episode 4070, for Friday the 8th of March 2024. Today's show is entitled, Civilization 3. It is part of the series Computer Strategy Games. It is hosted by Avukai and is about 16 minutes long. It carries a clean flag. The summary is, we start our look at the next game in the Civilization franchise. Hello, this is Ahuka for Hacker Public Radio, and I am happy to be here for another exciting episode in our ongoing series on computer strategy games that I've played. And today I want to start a discussion of Civilization 3. Now, last time we looked at, uh, we wrapped up our look at Alpha Centauri. And I made the claim that it represented one possible path to go forward after Civilization II, and the other path was represented by Civilization III. Now, both games are excellent and still fun to play today, even if they're not the latest thing to hit gaming. Um, I hope to give you an idea of how to play Civilization III and maybe make a case for why you should give it a try. Um, First, a little history. In the year 2000, Uh, Brian Reynolds left Firaxis to found Big Huge Games, where he developed a game called Rise of Nations. Well, it's good for him, uh, but that means he has now left the story as far as Civ is concerned. Uh, Rise of Nations was a pretty good game, too. But the mantle for project leader for Civ 3 really fell mostly to the Firaxis CEO, Jeff Briggs. Now, Jeff Briggs got his start creating music for the Microprose games, but he moved into game design. Now, assisting Briggs on this project was the game programmer, Soren Johnson. But one of the things we see uh, with uh, this story of Microprose and Firaxis is that many people participate in creating these games, not just the people who get top-line credit. Now, as before... Firaxis functioned as a game design studio. The production, distribution, marketing, etc. was handled by a company called Infogrames, which had acquired the rights to the civilization name for computer gaming. Now, as always, some things remain the same. It is still a turn-based game. You still will start with a nomadic tribe settling down in the year 4000 B.C., You still have to decide whether to expand or defend, and you still need to start researching technologies. That's the one-third that never changes in Civ. But other things do change. Uh, For instance, in previous Civs, building a settler in a city reduces the population by one, representing the people added to the settler group. But in Civ 3, it reduces the population by two, which makes it more difficult to crank out masses of settlers. Um, This may be a deliberate attempt to inhibit a strategy that many people, including me, used in Civ 1 and Civ 2 to just out-expand all of the AI players by cranking out settlers. In fact, I remember a game in the uh, Civ 1 where I would just um, settle a city, 
and, you know, build one defensive unit, then build a settler. And then that one would go out and settle the city and build one defensive unit and then send out a settler. And uh, it, it was done as like a grid pattern. Um, and it was, it was very successful, but, you know, it's also pretty mechanical. Um, so, you know, taking that out maybe gives you a chance to experiment with some more interesting approaches to play the game. Uh, in any case, definitely reducing the population by two when you build a settler does slow down your expansion in the early game. Um, and as we saw with Alpha Centauri, one of the new developments is that each sieve in the game has unique features. Each sieve has their own special abilities and their own special units. For instance, the Japanese sieve has the samurai in place of the knight, while Rome's unique unit is the legionary, which replaces the swordsman. The unique units are a bit stronger than the units they replace. You can see a list of the unique units in the Civilization fandom site, and I've put a, a link in the show notes uh, for all of these references. Now, each, each um, sieve has their own unique unit, and it is a somewhat stronger unit. So that's basically what that's about. Um, each sieve in the game also has strengths that give it advantages. A complete list of the strengths can be found, again, at the Civilization fandom site. Um, for instance, one of the best is agricultural, because it means you produce more food, and more food means more population, particularly in the early game. Uh, and because a settler takes away two population from a town or city, you have to get size three before popping out a settler. Uh, if you produce more food, you'll get to size three much quicker and get to jump on sieves that don't have this strength when it comes to settling land and establishing towns and cities. Uh, these traits also can affect the production of buildings. Um, for instance, a religious sieve can produce temples more cheaply while a militaristic one produces barracks more cheaply. And building wonders that match the, trace, the, the traits of a sieve can trigger a 20-turn golden age once and only once for each sieve. Uh, this is all explained at the Civilization fandom site. Uh, now, what's a golden age? A golden age, you, for that 20-turn period, you... You know, you're stronger, you pull, your research goes faster, you pull in more money. It's all, you can see this all explained in the Civ fandom site. Um, now, each Civ also starts with two techs already researched, and that can boost certain strategies in the early game. Uh, these are all early game techs, but if you have them already researched, you could use them right away instead of waiting until the research has been done. For example, the Americans get pottery and masonry, while the Germans get warrior code and bronze working. Um, you can see the list of different sieves and their unique units, strengths, and starting techs on the Civilization fandom site, once again. Uh, and again, all these links are in the show notes. Now, I'll put it all together, and it makes for a major change since Civ and Civ Two. In those games, there really wasn't a big difference between the sieves. And you could use pretty much the same strategy with any sieve and be successful. 
But in Civ 3, you want to consider all the aspects of a given Civ and develop the right strategy. For example, you would not want to pursue a production-oriented strategy with Germany because everything about Germany screams military. Its strengths are militaristic and scientific. Its starting technologies are warrior code and bronze working. But Americans would fit a production-oriented strategy very well. Their strengths are agricultural and expansionist, and their starting techs are pottery and masonry. So what the game is doing is making you consider what kind of victory path is suitable for the sieve you are playing as. Now, if you let the game give you a random assignment, you would need to make a rapid adjustment when you start. Or you can decide to try a certain strategy and select a sieve to play that fits that style. But your choice of sieve is now very important to how the game is played. And this also connects to the map type you select. If you're on a Pangaea map, and Pangaea means one massive continent, maybe a few small islands, but most of the landmass is one big continent, uh, having seafaring strengths is almost useless. But an archipelago map, which is one in which there's no large continents, just lots of islands of various sizes, then the seafaring strength is absolutely essential. Now, another major change is the role of culture in Civ 3. In Civ 2, cities had a fixed size, and borders didn't really exist except by inference. Um, in Civ 3, each city has a border, and the border expands outward, taking in more territory as the city develops its culture. And as you add cities and their boundaries expand, they merge into a single border. So obtaining culture to expand becomes important. Now you do this by building certain buildings and wonders that give you culture. Buildings include the cathedral, coliseum, library, palace, research lab, temple, and university. Now the palace is, is rather special. You only have one palace, but uh, when you start the game in your tribe, in 4000 BC settles your first city. That's where the palace is at that point. But you can build a palace in another city to move your capital. Or if someone conquers your capital, you might want to build one to get a new capital going. Um, now wonders are another thing to look at. Wonders all give you culture, but the amount varies. Even the Pentagon <laughs> gives you one additional culture. And culture not only defines borders and limits your expansion, it can also cause cities to flip from allegiance to one sieve to a different one. So, prioritizing the building of military units over other things can cause problems since military units do not provide culture. Now, culture can help keep your people happy and make it less likely that your cities will flip, perhaps even let you flip someone else's city. And you generate culture points every turn from buildings and wonders, and these accumulate over the course of the game. Now, another way to keep your citizens happy is with luxury resources, like incense, dyes, and furs. Now, having any of these in your empire can make your citizens happy, but you only get this effect from the first unit. 
So if you have two units of dies, as an example, you should look for a chance to trade the second one away with another sieve and maybe get some gold or other resources in exchange. Uh, so that, that trading thing is another big advance. Another significant change in Civ 3 has to do with settlers and workers. Now in Civ and Civ 2, settlers not only created new cities and towns, they also built roads, mines, irrigation, etc. In Civ 3, these functions were split. Settlers only build cities and towns. They don't do anything else. A new unit, the worker unit, now is the one that can build these improvements. In Civ 2, if you built a settler unit, you could use it as a worker. But as soon as you used it to create a new town, you no, lo you no longer had that worker. It, it had transformed. In Civ 3, you can create workers and use them throughout the game. And you need to. Irrigation provides increased food, which can help grow your population. Roads provide quicker movement between points and increase your commerce revenue and mines can provide additional resources to help your production. Now, what about the victory conditions? Uh, there's a detailed discussion of this at the Civ Fanatics website, link in the show notes, but the summary is you can get a domination victory. Uh, and for that, you need to control two-thirds of the land surface and two-thirds of the civilian population. So you have to satisfy both of those conditions. That's domination. Uh, diplomatic victory. You can win an election in the United Nations. So that's a whole new wrinkle. Uh, you can get a culture victory. Basically, this means amass more culture points than anyone else. This can be done in several ways, but it's, it's a little more in the weeds than I want to get in this overview. Uh, there's the usual science victory or space victory. Okay, be the first to launch a spaceship to Alpha Centauri. Now, the difference here is that being the first to launch gives you the victory. In Civ 2, you needed to be the first to land your ship. Um, and the reason that mattered is that if you had launched your ship and it was going to take 20 turns to get there, uh, you know, one of your enemies could say, well, I'll just capture your capital and th that'll destroy your spaceship, just because that's the, the way the game mechanic worked. Uh, in SIP 3, that's, that's not an issue anymore. Uh, you can get a conquest, conquest victory, and, you know, that's the same as it's always been, just wipe out everyone else. Um, and then there's a histographic victory, which is essentially who has the highest score. Um, and that's only used if no other victory has happened. Um, so think of it as kind of a tiebreaker if no one has managed to achieve any of the other victories. Now, there were expansions. Um, so Play the World was published in 2002 and added multiplayer to the game, as well as a few additional sieves and units. Um, Conquests was published in 2003 and added nine more historical scenarios, such as World War II in the Pacific. Now, some of these scenarios added new government types as well. Now, how do you obtain this? 
Civ 3 is no longer in print, but you can still obtain it in a variety of ways. First, you can buy it used at the usual places, such as eBay and Amazon. Second, you can get it at good old games. They offer the Civ 3 complete version, which includes both expansions for $5.99. Steam has the complete version for $4.99. So you can get a great game for very little money. Now, personally, I have a lot of games on Steam. I recognize it is not for everyone, but for me, I, I, it seems to work pretty well. So, uh, I'm going to put a few links to additional information in the show notes, and now I'm going to sign off. Uh, this is Ahuka for Hacker Public Radio, and as always, encouraging everyone to support free software. Bye-bye. been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. Today's show was contributed by a HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, you click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hosting for HBR has been kindly provided by anhonesthost.com, the Internet Archive, and rsync.net. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License.